Welcome to episode 19 of the WebJoy podcast. I'm your host, Eddie. In this podcast, we interview guests about their origin story and what makes them excited and joyful to be part of the tech community. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. There's always incremental improvements lying around with Kyle Shevlin. Welcome to another episode of WebJoy. I'm excited to have Kyle with us today. Hey, Kyle, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Eddie. How about you? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good as well. Well, hey, we typically start off an episode where you just kind of give a general introduction about yourself, who you are, what you do, uh, where you work, you know, simple basics. Sure. Uh, Well, I'm Kyle Shevlin. I am a platform engineer at a healthcare startup. I'm not going to drop the name uh, just because I actually haven't put it anywhere. It's not a secret. I'm just doing my small bit of like defiance to like say, you know, where we work probably isn't as important as like what we do. But if it's meaningful to you, that's great. But to me, I just, I'm just kind of tired of it. So I, I haven't put it on my resume. It's not on my Twitter. It's not on LinkedIn or anything. So I work at a healthcare startup as part of a front end platform team. Specifically, I'm building out essentially eternal tools and libraries to support the other engineers that are building product for our company. Our company helps people who have type 2 diabetes be able to honestly get off of their medications through a diet and through some other things that we help them do by connecting them with uh, specialists and that kind of thing. So I am helping people build product faster is kind of how I think about it. At the time of this recording, no one actually knows this, but by the time this airs, I will actually be helping lead a internal front-end tools team as well. So uh, that's great kindred spirits. (laughs) Congrats on the new job. Thanks, yeah. Internal shift. Fun to actually tell someone since no one knows. (laughs) Right, you can't, you know, haven't had that chance to get that uh, internet dopamine yet about it, right? No, I'm just just kidding. Exactly. (laughs) That's what we crave, right? Yeah, so what's the short version of your story, right? How did you get into internal tools, Uh, Front-end development, right? Is that where you started? Kind of give us a brief overview of what that journey looked like. My journey is not brief, but I will try. (laughs) I think people who who maybe know who I am uh, through Twitter or through my own blogging know that this is a second career for me. I was originally a pastor long ago. Um, I have a master's in theology, and that's just something I did. And I started coding a little over 10 years ago now, Honestly, on a whim, someone posted a Code Academy link on Facebook. I followed it. I did my ADHD thing where I, you know, just dove in and I just kept doing it. And and then one day someone was like, you know, you can get a job doing this, right? Because I had never like considered it as a career. It just wasn't something on my mind. And uh, they told me to go get a job and I did. It was lucky timing, honestly. It was before like the proliferation of boot camps it was a good time to enter the market. And I joined as a front-end developer because that's largely what I could teach myself. HTML, CSS, and jQuery, which is all I really knew. I didn't even, I can't even say I knew JavaScript. I knew jQuery and just a little bit of it. So I joined a, like a design-centric agency, like a, like an agency that built a lot of brand websites. And like my very first year, I just can't forget this. It was so formative, but I worked on like 80 different projects. And most of it was like, adding a little bit of UI or fixing some styling bug or something, or, you know, it was stuff like that. 
And I got really, really good at CSS. I've never understood the people who are like, oh, I can't do CSS just because that's what I did. So I actually have a little struggle having that, that empathy because that's kind of what I started on and then built the other skills. And then how I've gotten to like being an internal tools platforming engineer, I think that has a lot to do with a couple things. I'm an idealist by nature. So I want things to be right and I want to do things right for the sake of doing them right. I'm very lawful good in that that regard. Um, if you're a you know, you're into D and D and you, you know, your character breakdowns that way. And I think the other thing is I'm also naturally like a systems thinker. I often joke that I'm a forest person, not a tree person. Honestly, sometimes depending on the detail, the individual tree, it's just really tedious and boring to me. I'll lose it. But like, I will almost immediately hear something and see the greater impact it'll have or can understand how it fits in the greater system. And so building tools that kind of do that, like build systems that help people do the right thing, as, as silly as that sounds, that, that really fits with who I am. And then I think the last thing is just I like sharing things I've learned. Uh, like I like teaching in some capacity, and that capacity has changed a lot throughout my career. But being an internal tooling dev, that's kind of my job. My job is to find patterns that are like, no, this isn't great, and here's why. You know, I, I know you are a busy dev working the fast you can, but here's a better way. And then coming up with ways to make sure that they can't fall into bad habits. Like, you know, whether it's as simple as an ESLint rule, or maybe I just like, I don't give them the option to screw up in some way, maybe through types or something else. Uh, like, I'll give an example. I work mostly in React and React Native now. I think most people who work in React know that there's a style prop available. Well, you know, I can make it type safe that you can't use style, like the prop to override things. But that's not safe enough for me because I know some of you out there are going to work around me and you're going to put like a TS ignore and you're going to write your own styles and I ain't going to let that happen. So I literally destructure it and use a TS expect error and I don't assign it to the underlying component. You just can't do it. I keep you from doing it at runtime because I know you. I know how you work. And so... You know, sometimes it's about like gently guiding and other times it's about putting a really strong barricade and saying, no, you can't break my system. I'm so sorry. That is awesome. All of you putting TS ignores everywhere, uh, including the people at my own company, Kyle sees you. <laughs> I mean, why do you think I know what I need to like prevent uh, from happening? It's like I see it all over the place. I'm paying attention, you know, so. <laughs> That's right. That's awesome. What is it that kind of keeps you excited about working in tech, right? In development, you you kind of addressed a little bit of it, right? Like you like to have things working properly, right? And that kind of leans towards the internal tools. But yeah, I guess what keeps you passionate about what you do? That's a really good question. And I think I think the answer is like, it's a multitude of things. I mean, one, let's be real. There's good money in this career. And that does help. Like, it helps you get through the bad times. It helps you realize, like, you could be doing other things that are much harder. And and frankly, I mean, I'm just really fortunate. Like, I changed careers at a good time. And I've seen how, like, for example, my finances have improved my life because of this career 
versus my friends who are still in ministry or struggling or something like that. So super lucky there. And it would just be, it wouldn't be realistic not to acknowledge that. So I have to acknowledge that. The other thing, I think it just, it's always fit my brain. Even before coding, I had the wildest education journey. I started as an engineering major, like mechanical engineering. I have a double major in philosophy and mathematics because I had enough math credits that when I switched to philosophy, I already had the major done. It was not a wise decision, by the way. It's just it's just something a 19-year-old me did without knowing any better. I didn't have any guidance in my life. That's a story for another podcast and a therapist, probably. So I've just always had a brain that could you know, analyze things, break them down, maybe figure out how they work, or just kind of enjoyed that kind of puzzle and coming up with solutions kind of thing. So that certainly helps. It's nice to have like problems to focus on, to work through. I think, I think other things that keep me kind of passionate are, I love the idea that there's just always incremental improvement laying around. Like you can go learn a new technique and you never know when it might be a useful addition to your repertoire. I guess related to that is like how like learning a concept can maybe just transform the way you think. And I've kind of always enjoyed transforming the way I think. Like you don't pursue degrees in philosophy and theology if you're not willing to hear an idea or a concept, wrestle with it and come away with different ideas and be a different person or something like that. And I, to some degree, I think that happens in coding. Like I'll give an example. Many people who know me on Twitter know I have a course on state machines and I've really enjoyed learning about them over the years, even though to this day, I've still never gotten to use them in production at a company. Like I have a full on course on them. I think they're great, but I've never gotten to use them. There's always some pushback somewhere. I think I might finally be at a place where we can. My manager's like on board. Another team is like, oh yeah, we want to use those. So might quite get there. But what I'm getting at is like, regardless of never being able to use like X state, it radically changed how I think about programming. You know, you go from these variables that represent infinite uh, data to understanding that things actually mostly progress through a set of finite states. And when you start to see that, you actually start to see states that you didn't know were there. I was explaining something to my wife the other day, and I was like, you know, you might have something where like a light switch is on or off, for example, but there is something there in the time it takes you to move the switch. And I was specifically talking about animation. So you would have a state of that transition, right? And when you start to learn to think that way, I think it just changes the way you look at a lot of programming. And so, I don't know, I feel like all those things kind of keep me interested in it. I, I kind of went everywhere, but that's what I always do. My apologies for my ADHD brain. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's really interesting because I also feel like in some ways, swinging it back around to your philosophy degree, like that's kind of profound because people oftentimes feel unsettled when they are in a state of transition. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel like identifying that you are actually in a definitive state and like, okay, if I'm in this state, what are the attributes of the state I should be in? Like, what should I be doing in this time? Because normally they're like, well, I'm not this thing yet, right? I'm not turned on yet. I'm not turned off yet. And I was like, well, what properties belong to you in this state of transition? I feel like, I don't know, you, you hit something really deep there. That's cool. <laughs> well, I guess I can kind of see that. I think I've, I think to kind of add to that, 
people often hear on my journey and they're like, how'd you end up here? And I think, I think people maybe don't recognize that there's really a ton of overlap, like of all these things, like learning to think like philosophy was mostly just learning to think analytically. And that's a skill that's used everywhere. I mean, that's why PhD stands for philosophy of that thing, right? Whatever you happen to study. And so I guess I had, I'm I'm sure I have, but I've never really thought of it as like, maybe we do all focus on our personal transitions and not our current states or vice versa. That's a really interesting thing. I think we need another podcast for that one. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. We'll we'll book that one. Stay tuned, everyone. Um, (laughs) So kind of one of the main things we come around to on this podcast is talking about things that bring people joy. And I've noticed that, you know, you kind of have this motto, right, that you enjoy leaving things better than you find them. And I just really love that. So I was curious if we could spend some time where you kind of talk to us around how you came around to this thought pattern and kind of how it intersects with your life and your job and, and that stuff. Sure. I don't think it was a conscious choice. I think to some degree, it's who I am. And I think it could be a bit because I don't want to say things are causational, but there's probably some high correlations with the fact that I'm neurodivergent and maybe there's some degree of rigidity. I kind of look at myself sometimes as a a relatively like black and white rigid kind of thing. It's not that I don't understand nuance. It's like, but once I've made up my mind literally about something, until you really give me extremely compelling evidence, I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to stand here. And I think that applies to like what I mean by improving. While improving involves change, like the constant is I always want to improve. Like the things I pursue and the things I do in my life, whether it's coding or like probably the biggest endeavor I've done in my entire life is golf. I took up golf in high school. I played lots of sports, but I took that one up in high school as well. And I played collegiately. I was an All-American at the junior college level. I went on to play more and I thought about turning pro and The truth is I didn't because I didn't have money, but looking back, like that was probably a wise decision even without having the money to try it. But even to this day, I still practice every single day. I have a net and a mat in my garage. I have a putting green in my basement. I am probably better than I was in college at this point. And I do it because it's an impossible to perfect thing. It just really tickles something in my brain to constantly pursue this impossible to perfect thing. And it's it's not just that. Like when I was doing music, you can see on the video camera behind me, I have, I have music equipment in, behind me. You know, I was constantly trying to get better at that, whether it be music production or songwriting or something. I just really enjoy, it's weird. The things don't necessarily like make me happy, but the recognition of improvement or just the feeling of improvement, that really speaks to me. Another way, like video games, like I don't play video games that like make me happy. I play video games that I get better at. Like as silly as it sounds, like I like Rocket League is probably the one I've played the most the last few years. And why do I like it? Because the skill ceiling is unattainable. Like the ceiling just keeps getting moved up. Now I have a personal skill ceiling. My thumbs are not amazing. They're like the least coordinated digits on my body, but I can see how I've progressed and how I get better. And, and that, that triggers something for me. That pursuit 
of improvement. So it's weird. It's like, that's a constant. I think all things should pursue improvement. I look at the world and I'm like, why wouldn't you try to get better? And it's why I get mad about all sorts of things. It's like, there are common sense actions you can take to do better, or there are common sense actions you can take to be safer or, or something like that. Like, and so I just kind of look at that and that's a constant. Like, I just expect people should pursue the same thing as me. And that's, that's how I'm rigid. But I love the changing that comes from pursuing improvement. I hope that makes sense. Nice. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I guess, how does that, you know, as you're dealing with code as a programmer, how do you balance that, right? How do you balance improving things versus building things, right? Like shipping? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) How do you improve it and actually ship? No, I think that's why I'm a platform engineer, right? Like I, I realized one of the challenges I had was as a product engineer, I feel like there's unfortunately like a natural antagonism between um, doing quality engineering and product. And I think it's because, you know, maybe we're motivated differently, but also it's like product lives and dies by like what they're able to tell the business they've actually accomplished, like, you know, with their slide decks and their meetings. And also like what revenue does that bring in? Like that's how they're going to achieve success versus like as an engineer, my maybe my inclination is not to think of successes, how much dollars I've done. But, but you know, it could be. It could definitely be a metric, like especially like if you're a back-end engineer and you can like literally see like, you know, if I fix this uh, this function here, this throughput here, whatever, I save the company X thousands of dollars, great. That's a good metric for you. But as a front-end engineer, I think my metrics tend to be a little more difficult to touch, to understand. I can't tell you how much more money, a uh, more delightful experience gave without somebody else doing some kind of like analytics and uh, economic breakdown, stuff like that. So I feel like there's that, that antagonism. And if you're a product engineer, you unfortunately have to balance it. You have to learn. You want to be successful. You have to deliver product. And that should probably be your focus. But that's why I pursued work where my stakeholders aren't my product manager and the users directly, but my stakeholders are the other devs. Like, do the other devs feel like it's easier to do their job? Do the other devs feel like they're less likely to run into the problems they did in the past? Do the other devs feel like they're being successful by using the tools and the systems we create? That's a win-win for me. That means I get to sit here and I get to fixate on little details that actually really matter. Um, things like a system is all, all about balancing, enabling and disabling. What power do I give you versus what powers do I restrict? You know, and, and really thinking through like, I'm writing a blog post right now about how you know props on a component do that. Like some props are expanders, like they expand the possibilities of what can happen, like children or um, anything that can take an infinite state, like a string or a number. Like that's going to expand what this thing can do. Um, versus props that are restrictive, like they only allow a certain set of of things to happen. And both are good, but you really have to think about when you're designing something to, for reuse, to be reused by a lot of people, how do those things, that power, that enabling, that disabling, how does that impact everyone that's going to use this? 
And so, I don't know. Lucky for me, that really fits the way I like to think anyways. Finding work that fits that way works for me. The, the hardest part is convincing people like that it's worth paying me for that stuff. Because, you know, like... <laughs> When things are good, I think it. I think everyone's like, "Oh yeah, let's let's make it easier for everyone." But at the end of the day, you know, I think by the time this comes out, there's been plenty of companies with layoffs. Uh, I've definitely talked to people on internal teams that are that have concerns that proving that you have value and you add value can be a little more challenging when your work is foundational versus on the edge, like on where the user actually interacts with stuff. So I don't know. It's a double-edged sword, I guess. Yeah, no, that makes sense, right? The more of a supportive role you play, the less clear cut your value is. And particularly like if it's a big supportive team that is like, well, you know, how big does the supportive team actually need to be? Yeah. So yeah, I can definitely see that, see that playing a role. Wow. So that's interesting how that has kind of shaped where you work. And I totally, I've so far spent most of my career in a product engineering role. So I totally agree. Like, right. Like I've been trained to think through trade-offs of quality versus shipping speed, quality and speed are constantly like balanced. Anytime I'm working on something and it's like, you talk to the product manager and you're like, Oh, like, well, you know, how important is it that it does this extra feature? Because we could get it out faster if we cut that one feature, you know? like <laughs> Yeah, you do it all the time. You know, you cut scope, you cut scope, you cut scope. I think one of the things that's really useful about this kind of job for the way my brain works is I have a lot of autonomy to, as I'm going, like I'm improving the system and I see something, it's not a big deal for me to make another ticket and go and just keep going. And and as long as everything's building towards like the goal we have, that's fine. I, I'm also, you know, uh, I'm not the biggest stickler of like roadmaps and sprints and all that. I'm definitely a bit more of like, just put things on a board and let's go. Like, let's not worry about points. They're all made up. They don't matter. You know, stuff like that. You, you don't want me as your agile uh, coach or anything like that. This time I will swear you can blur it out, but I'm letting you know it's a, uh, have you ever seen JFDI? Just fucking do it. So kind of a believer of that. Well, if you ever decide that you need to get a job as an agile something, let me know and we'll take down this episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I'll stand by this till I die. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, hey, as we're wrapping up, I was just curious, like, how does this kind of play in your personal life, right? Is there any way in which you kind of approach this just in, yeah, more, you know, whether it's hobbies or how you go about your day or productivity or whatever? Yeah. I mean, I think we've already touched a bit about how pursuing improvement and leaving things better really means something to me. Like, for instance, uh, we bought our first home right before the, the lockdown. And so, you know, Slowly but surely, I'm improving things here and I have designs and plans and stuff like that. So there's things like that. I think there's also ways, like, I just ask myself a lot, uh, not that I necessarily come up with good answers, but I ask myself things like, like, are there changes I can make that would improve my life, that would maybe get me more time with friends, for example, or uh, give me more opportunities to spend doing activities I enjoy? I'll give an example. 
I don't do this every Thursday, but one of the things I was doing when I uh, was pursuing work was made sure that I told them like, hey, there's a group of guys I play with golf every Sunday, but they also play Thursdays afternoons. How cool are you with me splitting off on the afternoon, going and playing, and then coming back and working in the evening? And it, you know, if they balked at it, I balked at them. But the way I look at it, two things. I live in the Pacific Northwest. Sunlight is a precious commodity. I got to take advantage of it while it's there. But two, you know, time is a precious commodity. Like one of the ways you can be wealthy in this world is to have freedom with your time. And it's really hard to achieve. And so finding people that will be okay with that or allow you at least the flexibility to maybe control your time a little bit more can be really meaningful. And so for me, that's, that's one of the ways like I kind of apply all that to my life. And honestly, a part of it is, and this kind of goes back to philosophy, theology, and all that is like, it's just really thinking about how time is finite. And I think there's potentially even more pressure on it due to things like anything from like uh, climate change to all sorts of other potential issues and crises that might happen that affect things like economics and communities and all that. So part of me is like, I might as well do the things I enjoy now while I can because I don't know if they're going to be here in 30 years. I play with a bunch of old retirees and I joke with them about that all the time. They're like in their 60s and 70s. They play four or five times a week. And I know people have their qualms with golf and I, I get it. I really do actually get it. I, I think they'd be surprised that I that I actually understand why they're upset with it. But it's just a, it's just the most challenging activity that I've ever done in my life and enjoy. I enjoy it in a very different way than probably they think. But my point being... It might not be there when I'm at the age of retirement. We might not get to retirement. So I'm going to try and enjoy it while I can and enjoy whatever else in my life that I can while I can. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think lots of times we can shut down our ideas of growth and progress because we think, well, I can't do that, right? And so it's just, I think in some ways, like you were talking about with your house, allowing yourself to think what could be better and don't shut it down immediately. And then you can make a plan and you can say, this won't be tomorrow, but maybe I'll do this in six months or a year or two years and allowing yourself, you know, um, to make the most important things happen today. Because like you said, you know, yeah, who knows what tomorrow holds? Who knows? I sure don't. Yep. Awesome. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, it's been just a delight to chat and kind of talk through your, your worldview and your experiences as a developer. And uh, yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Eddie. I'm glad to be here and uh, had a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us for episode 19. There's always incremental improvements lying around with Kyle Shuffling. You can find out more about Kyle on his Twitter, at Kyle Shefflin, or his website, kyleshefflin.com. He has a brand. You can find links to everything we talked about in this episode, as well as a link to Kyle's Twitter and website in the show notes, if you didn't get it already. If you enjoyed this episode, help others discover it as well. Give us a shout out on Twitter and tag a friend or a coworker that you think would enjoy it. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter to stay up to date at WebJoyFM. Thank you for listening and have a great day. <laughs>